Hey, hey, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to Freightonomics. Anthony Smith, along yeah, with myself, here. Zach Strickland. I'm here. Here to talk some freight market economics. And Guess today, what? we're going to be joined by this guy. Mike Monodistal. <laughs> and it's an amazing day. I mean, we're also live streaming right now, so we're going to be active on LinkedIn if you're watching between the times of 2 and 2.30 Eastern Standard Time. Eastern Daylight on, Time. Eastern Daylight Time, is daylight. that right? Yep. On, um, <laughs> on Wednesdays. So if you're on LinkedIn and you want to give us a, a give, let your voice be heard, give Please us a do. shout, Please Facebook do. as well, or you might be watching a later time on YouTube or mm -hmm. on your favorite streaming platform. We appreciate it. Yeah. So uh, thank you for joining us today, Mike, uh, our rail and intermodal expert here to discuss today uh, on Freightonomics. We're going to talk about all the modes of transportation, not just trucks. Uh, but we're going to hit all the modes. We're going to hit boats. We're going to hit rail, obviously, uh, and also trucks, um, but also a little bit of air cargo. Uh, talk about those planes um, and, and what they're all signaling for the recovery process and the freight market in general. So, you know, it's been yet another interesting week. We're approaching peak season in the truckload market, the, the domestic truckload market. We've seen another uh, sequential increase increase in uh, trucking volumes, uh, as well as that tightening of capacity that we traditionally see this time of year. But is this sustainable? You know, that's I think that's the biggest question on everybody's mind. We've kind of reached this point of, you know, the market's peaking. We're back to this seasonal pattern, although we're a little overheated. It's almost like the stock market to an extent, like how long can this last with people being unemployed, not spending money? The industrial side of the economy still doesn't look as strong as we we think it should for this amount of freight to move through the system. But that being said, we've got some stories of the day that really, you know, go in two opposite directions. <laughs> uh, the first story is, you know, capacity cuts send Trans-Pacific rates into orbit. Now, Greg Miller, our uh, maritime editor out there, uh, writes for American Shipper, uh, does a brilliant job of explaining the interaction between that, uh, you know, maritime ocean freight and the domestic freight market here in the United States, talks about how that impacts us here in the United States is, you know, we've seen an incredible increase in spot market uh, rates coming from China to North America's West Coast here over the last several weeks. Mike, you've You've seen this quite significantly. You you monitor this on the rail side uh, because it's almost like a leading indicator. Is that accurate? To yeah, I would say the you know the, the ocean rates. I mean, it's a combination, of course, of, of supply and demand. And um, you know, I think the the supply that was you know brought back, um, which is it was they they brought it back too far. It seemed like I mean it was it was very hard to predict. You know what uh, the coronavirus was going to have was going to you know take place as far as um, consumer activity. And the expectation was when we saw these record unemployment numbers that consumers would really not buy anything that wasn't absolutely necessary and, and that, you know, volumes would just be really sort of in a depression. And so the, the, the ocean carriers saw this and they, they sort of rushed to cancel sailings and, and, and canceled quite a bit in the second quarter. And it seems like maybe they, they cut back, you know, too far. And it's, right. it's primarily been um, just lots of capacity, you know, being taken out and, you know, it's, it's also a function of, uh, you know, a lot of the um, ocean carriers around the world have gotten bailouts from their respective countries, right. um, which has which has been part of it. And there's really capacity controlled by three major alliances. So if you have a concentrated industry, it's almost like a you know exercise in Porter's 
by forces. <laughs> so these are these are leading to. Um, you know, shippers um, you know, having difficulty, you know, finding good rates. A lot of them are going to the NVOCCs um, right. because they have purchased um, you know, capacity well in, in, of, in bulk. It, yeah. yeah, ahead of all this ha happening. So the NVOs, NVOCCs, which are basically brokers for the ocean, um, you know, are at the advantage because they purchase capacity for less than what the market ultimately right. is, is going to bear. Non-vessel owning common carrier. Non-vessel operating, non -operating, operating. Yep. I mean, either way. Uh, yeah, so they, yeah, yeah, they, they of course, you know, they enter in contracts just like a shipper would. Uh, the BMOs or uh, they, they would, they would certainly, you know, go out. Normally, shippers will enter contracts with the carriers early on. They decided they didn't want to do that uh, to an extent. Some of them didn't, uh, and they didn't, uh, you know, they didn't anticipate the fact that uh, the maritime shippers, unlike the domestic uh, trucking market here in the United States, they can control capacity a little bit better than, you know, the carriers here in the United States can. So canceling sailings. But again, a lot of these shippers were canceling their orders in April, you know, as the market was bottoming, as the unemployment rate skyrocketed, et cetera. Uh, a lot of these shippers were giving signals to the ocean carriers that they were not going to need this capacity. Now, all of a sudden, demand has come back, at least on the retail end. Anthony, would you agree? Um, yeah, if we're looking at the dichotomy between retail or the consumer-facing segments compared to um, industrial, um, both moved up, of course, from historic lows, but um, there's much more of an apparent, um, I think, recovery trend happening on the retail side, on the consumer side of things, rather it's just a less bad version happening <laughs> on industrial production, on right. the industrial sector. It's still very much a long way to go. Yeah, and we're going to get into that here in a little bit. But yeah, the you know, the expansion of the rates on the uh, the ocean side has really put uh, kind of a dent in the shipper transportation budgets. I mean, the supply chains are already, I think, relatively exposed right now uh, in terms of having to deal with all this international risk. Uh, you know, China obviously being the epicenter of the COVID-19 outbreak, as well as the epicenter of the trade war last year. So there's a lot of activity going on there. Um, and this is just kind of insult to injury as the demand, even though retail has come back, it's not come all the way back. I mean, it's set for in certain sectors like the home improvement, uh, consumer electronics, I believe is doing well, uh, as well. Um, grocery, uh, food, retail, et cetera, has done better, but the rest of the economy still kind of crawling its way back out of this, you know, this environment. So, uh, ocean rates going through the roof right now as the carriers can control their capacity, unlike the domestic freight market. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, we've got the air cargo side. Air cargo rates are now starting to correct, coming from China to North America. Now, uh, you know, I, if you guys read this article, this was pretty interesting to me because it's 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 about it's more about the commodity that's being shipped on the air cargo side. They obviously don't have the capacity. Uh, right now, it's been reduced dramatically because of the passenger cargo. Uh, if you've watched Freightonomics or a lot of our read some of our articles, you'll know that 90% of the capacity pulled off of uh, you know at the peak, pulled out of the skies uh, in March and April. Uh, they've started to put some of those back on, but still dramatically reduced in terms of the available capacity. And the spot rates for air cargo shot up as much as $10, $11 per pound, uh, which is extreme in that world, and now starting to come back down. What are your thoughts on that? 
Well, I think it, it you know, overcorrected, um, you know, at, at the beginning, and it was really sort of such an extraordinary circumstance with the the, the COVID situation that, um, you know, people were just scrambling to get the equipment they needed. There was a lot of hoarding of equipment, um, and it wasn't really clear which medical devices were needed and in what quantities. And so everyone just sort of scrambled to get as much as they could. I mean, you remember all those, um, you know, reports of everyone's going to die because there's not enough ventilators and then there became an excess of ventilators. And I think I, I think that was just sort of the, maybe the one that's most visible, but that, that was sort of seen with other medical devices as well. Um, we're sort of, you know, past the, you know, the, you know, sky is falling, panic, you know, you know, ensuing, you know, type of, you know, from the coronavirus. And now we're just in this long, miserable tail. But at least we're not at the point where people are, you know, think they're going to run out of supplies next week. So you have seen that shift to other, you know, things that you mentioned, you know, things like, you know, leisure apparel and, you know, the athleisure, which is probably the new business casual is, is, Athleisure. So, so all, so all of those things that are in demand, you've seen just a shift in what is what is being demanded. And I would say that a lot of those things are probably not as time sensitive, which is a big component of air cargo, and really, really the reason why air cargo exists at all. You're, why you're right. willing to pay that premium is you need it right now. Some of that stuff, you know, can wait. Although apparel companies will say, well, that stuff spoils too. With the with the seasons yep. and with with fashion trends and and, and so forth, but I, I think it's been, you know, just lower priority in, in terms of, of what is is being moved. And then you are starting to see some additional, um, you know, service in passengers. I mean, it's still a fraction of what is normal. I mean, I, I think the you know TS people going through TSA checkpoints mm-hmm. went down to two or three percent, and and now it's you know ten percent of what it was or something like that. But it's 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 gone up at least from its low. Yeah. Uh, Eric Coolidge, of course, the writer of that article. You, uh, both of these articles are out on FreightWaves.com. Uh, big heavy hitters this week in terms of a lot of traffic on both of those. And I do think it's fascinating to see uh, the disparity between the two modes. You know, you see still capacity tightening on the maritime side, yet it's coming back. Like, again, I don't want to say loosening because that implies that we're starting to see a lot more added capacity. We're not. Uh, it's more just a lowering of demand on that end. Um, so both of those are great. So, uh, in terms of the rest of the freight market, now we brought you on for a reason, Mike, the rail sector itself is really heavily tied to Anthony's, one of Anthony's favorite segments, uh, next to the consumer sentiment, uh, who he's, you know, very empathetic towards, (laughs) uh, the industrial sector of the economy, heavily tied to the rail industry, uh, you know, a lot of traffic going there. So, you know, it looks like we are in the midst of a continued industrial recession. We mm-hmm. don't necessarily have the same signal from a lot of the rail traffic that we would in others. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in the rail uh, volumes right now that, you know, illustrate, give us a little bit more detail about the recovery process. Yeah, with, with rail traffic, um, you know, it's broken down into 20 categories um, that the AAR reports, and it comes out every week. And so you get a, a fair amount of granularity. Now, most of the rail carload traffic, if we set aside intermodal units, are tied to the industrial economy in some way. I mean, if you, if you exclude coal and grain and petroleum, you really sort of get a good sense of what's happening in the industrial economy. And those volumes, 
like Anthony said earlier, they're up off of their lows, but they're still extremely weak. I mean, the rail car load traffic is still down just over 20% year over year. And so that really, um, you look at that and say, well, there's really been a severe um, industrial recession. Now, it, it had been down as much as 30%, but still down 20%. That's just as, as bad as you saw in you know, 2009, you know, time frame. So it's, it's sort of indicating you're having that type of a recession. I mean, I think going into the year, a lot of companies were cutting, at least companies I follow, were cutting their capital budgets to begin with. They felt like they had enough equipment and, and, and so forth. And so that sort of trickles into, you know, volumes that you see on the railroads, things like metals and minerals and chemicals and all those things that go into a lot of, you know, durable goods, capital equipment. So the industrial economy you know, it still seems extremely weak. It seems like there's lots of capacity there. Mm -hmm. And the portion of the railroad that you see um, really with a larger degree of recovery, like Anthony mentioned before, is on the consumer side, which uh, manifests itself in intermodal volumes. Intermodal, intermodal volumes last week were only down, you know, about 5%. So those right. have really come almost all the way back. Now, it is on top of 2019, which was down about 5% overall versus 2018. But but still, that's kind of a, a garden variety um, volume decline. So so you wouldn't think that necessarily we're heading into a recession and, you know, from, from that uh, statistic. Huh. So basically, the domestic side, that's going to be your 48, 53-foot containers. Um, then you have your international intermodal side, which is your 20s and 40s. Now, traditionally speaking, the maritime shippers that we were talking about uh, earlier, expanding capacity, or not expanding, but contracting capacity, rates going up, those volumes, which are heavily tied, and those shippers or those carriers own those 20s and 40s. And we're seeing a really soft continued decline in 20 and 40 foot volume moving on the rails in the United States still, correct? Yeah. So we have a, a fairly unique, um, very unique uh, data series in Sonar that breaks out the, you know, the domestic containers and the international containers. And, and you know, when you look at that and you compare the two, you see that domestic containers, like you said, are, are rising. International containers are falling. Mm -hmm. And that falling international is, is a function of just lower import volume overall, fewer sailings. And I also think, um, you know, higher degree of transloaded shipments where, you, where right. they transload, uh, you know, goods from the, the international containers into the larger domestic containers. And I think they're doing that for a couple of reasons. One, there are um, an excess of containers currently. This was one of the only um, years where I can remember we're going into the year that none of the intermodal companies have um, you know, taken delivery of incremental equipment. I mean, the only uh, um, containers they took delivery of was replacement because the, the containers don't last all that long, seven or eight years. Um, and so they, they were sort of just, just maintaining their, 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 their fleet sizes, and then you see the volumes decline. So the, in order to utilize those containers, there's more transloading, and that benefits the ocean you know, carriers because they can get, uh, they don't have to reposition those right. those containers on the backhaul. They can, you know, put them right back on the on the ship. Um, but really, I mean, one thing that's, you know, has come, come about because of that is there's fewer empty container movements or what the railroads call, call revenue empties. And that's created an issue for exporters because a lot of those 40-foot containers that would otherwise move empty back to the port are filled with exported goods, such as you know agriculture, um, you know such as you know soybeans that go from the Midwest to the Pacific Northwest and end up in in, in China. So um, it's it's created some issues for for exporters. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, so just to illustrate some of this for the people that may be unfamiliar with the rail, you know, you, you 
a lot of those 20 and 40 foot containers, they move from China on a boat to North America. They hit a port, Port of Los Angeles, Long Beach, more than likely. Uh, when we trans, when they, he's talking about transloading, a lot of those get transloaded into either a dry van trailer, 53 foot trailer, or another intermodal 53 foot container or 48 foot container, which then moves on the rail, which allows them to position that empty container back on the boat uh, more efficiently than they would if they just threw it on a truck or on the rail directly from the port, shipped it over to Dallas, for instance and then had to get something else to move it back. And most of the time, those are coming back empty because we are in a trade deficit almost all the time. Um, so instead of uh, the ocean carriers paying for that empty 20 to 40 foot container moving from Dallas to, back to Los Angeles to get put back on the boat, they just transload that uh, freight off of those containers and then put that freight or that container back on the boat, which saves them money in the long run. So again, helps the ocean containers, but again, like you were saying, hurts the people that are exporting a lot of our goods across the ocean because now they have they have nowhere to put their freight to move it across the ocean. Accurate? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and the, a lot of the exports that we we move out of the U.S. tend to have the transportation cost is a fairly high percentage of the delivered cost, mm -hmm. and so that's why they want to utilize those empty containers. It's a, a less expensive transportation option. So basically, what you're saying is it's good to be in control of your capacity. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, the ocean carriers at this point appear to be doing really well. Uh, that probably the winning, the most winning uh, mode of transportation in all of this is a lot of people were concerned about their uh, basically their how well they were going to handle this whole because they got huge ships, a lot of investment in all the uh, equipment and operation. And yet they seem to be making plenty of money. And one of the things that you mentioned was that mm -hmm. the activity on the West Coast, and that's really the main port that a lot of this stuff comes into. So could you kind of just talk to you a little bit more about what's happening on the West Coast right now, what's going on with volumes right now, spot rates and all that good stuff? Yeah, I just wrote up a, an article that we put on a Railway Age uh, a website, um, which, which talked about this sort, of, just sort of the L.A. metro area. And that's actually been one of the hottest areas in the country as far as just a transportation market is concerned. Um, so we've really seen tender rejections and volumes out of LA rise faster than, you know, the rest of the country. Um, you know, it's 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 always a, sort of a headhole market because just so much freight comes into the that LA Long Beach, you know, port complex. Um, but really, you've seen a lot of volumes come not just you know straight from the port, but also from a lot of the warehousing you know centers in Southern California, such as Ontario. So you've seen. Um, you know, volumes, you know, freight volumes, particularly long haul freight volumes, um, you know, be stronger than, you know, a lot of the, the, the shorter hauls. And so there's been, you know, the, the strength has been concentrated from going, you know, L.A. to the you know, consumption centers in the eastern and, um, you know, the central parts of the of the country. So, um, you know, lately there's there's been a pickup both in volume on on the road and on the rail. Um, you know, the rail can get it to the Eastern Consumption Centers more efficiently, um, but, uh, you know, truck can get it there faster. And, and you know, for, for most of this year, you saw truck, because there was a weak truck market, um, you know, take some share from, from Intermodal. But in the last, you know, 30 days or so, they've, they've moved pretty much in lockstep. Gotcha. And seasonally speaking, we normally see the peak rail intermodal season occur around September, October, correct? Mm -hmm. um, what do you think that this is this this looks a lot like a pull forward to an extent? Uh, do you think we're going to see a muted peak season, um, you know, on the rail side of things because of this or? 
Yeah, I think you could. I think a lot has to do with consumer demand. I mean, I think another thing that's that's interesting is are there going to be um, the peak season surcharges on the ocean carriers, which right. was mentioned in one of the articles that you that you discussed, and that it, it seems almost like it's an artificial you know shortage of capacity caused by all these blank sailings. But um, you know, you would you still expect that there would be, you know, surge in, in, in imports there. I mean, usually for, for retail, you have kind of two big seasons. You have one, you know, for, before Christmas and then one that's back to school. Back to school may not happen. It may not happen in some states, not others. <laughs> right. um, so, you know, you know, maybe, um, you know, you have you know, de- demand, you know, the inventories don't get depleted for back to school and those goods get marked down and, and it is sort of a sort of a pull forward of, of demand. So you could see a, a, a muted you know, peak season. So I think it's a reasonable um, expectation. Yeah, that'd be interesting because, I mean, I think a lot of what we're seeing right now is this knee jerk reaction to the surprising speed of recovery. I mean, you get on Amazon right now, you still can't get a lot of the goods uh, that you th- used to be able to attain within a day or two on your prime orders. Uh, still majority of that is sitting offline. You know, I, I've been to, you know, I'm not going to name names, but furniture stores, cause I just moved into a house, uh, and they are talking about their supply chain issues and the ability for, uh, for them to get, uh, you know, the goods into this country or off the port. Uh, for instance, some of it could be just sitting in containers right now. Uh, there's all sorts of disconnect in the supply chain right now, uh, globally. Uh, just because there's, you know, maybe they were prepared for certain goods to be in demand, but others were not. So even though we may have a lot of inventory available in certain warehouses, it may not be the right inventory. So I think we're seeing a good bit of that freight getting pulled into the country now as a correctional uh, device, whereas they were canceling those orders in April. Um, And I think that that may actually float, at least on the maritime side, for the next several months. I think we might see that one. Uh, you see what I did there? I see you? what you did there. <laughs> um, you know, I think it'll be through July into September, into August that we will continue to see, you know, tighten capacity on the maritime side. I don't know, however, how that translates to the domestic freight market. I do still think that we're going to see a bit of a correction internally. Again, we got to wait on those boats to come here with the goods that they need, but supply chains are still deficient in certain goods. They still do not have what they need. You go across the board, and including home improvement and all those electronics, they still don't have the freight they need. So that means that there is going to be some form of correction uh, moving forward because you have to have inventory to make money, and all these companies are tr- going to try to gobble up all the revenue they can get here in this third quarter. What do you think is the biggest uh, choke point right now in terms of having that inventory available? Is it um, just there's not enough shipping capacity? Is it is it manufacturing? The manufacturers have to in, in China have to social distance. I mean, what, what is the, the sort of the choke point? I, I think you've got multiple. Honestly, I think we've got uh, the fact that everybody forecasted lower demand through the month of May. We've already seen recovery in certain sectors in May rapidly. Uh, the industrial side, which we're going to get to here in a second, not so much. But all the other sides, retail, consumer spending, haven't done as poorly as a lot of people forecasted. So those orders were canceled. All of a sudden, they're sitting at home ordering up athleisure, as you mentioned, things that our lifestyles are all changing now. So we're seeing an de- increasing demand for goods that we did not have prior to this. And so it's created a uh, you know this vacuum of availability of freight and goods for the right sectors. Um, we're just you know the food and grocery sector. Uh, it's shifted from that you know macro supply chain Cisco 
commissary style to more of a fresh, uh, you know, grocer type supply chain. Um, and that's not going to come back. That's not going to change in the next couple of months. I mean, we, we, we're still we're slowly crawling back to that industrial food production uh, style, if you will. Uh, but it's still not coming back. I think we're going to still see this work from home lifestyle continue. So there's a lot of adjustment going on right now with supply chains, with people trying to figure out what people are going to be doing. Uh, businesses don't know how the, how our lives are going to look on the end of this. You know, if we have a second wave, people go back to their houses. The way to mitigate that risk, if you're a business, is to adapt to this way of life. And so if you are starting to see people can, you know, work from home more often, you're just not going to be able to, like, there's just not enough information available for people right now to make that clear-cut investment in this new way of living. There's still a lot of hold up there. Uh, but, you know, we got five minutes left, and I definitely want to talk about those carload volumes. Again, this is more tied to the industrial side of the economy. Carload volumes still depressed. Industrial production, Anthony, doing yeah. great, right? Yeah, not doing great at all. And I think we, we kind of chatted about it on last episode. It's all about perspective. I mean, when you're looking at industrial production, um, I saw some outlets kind of say, oh, it's a recovery. It's a bounce back up because there was a 1.4% month-to-month uh, increase. But it's still down 15.3% on a year-over-year basis. And so as we look through some of the significant components of um, industrial production that's going to have an impact, I think, on rail intermodal. Um, we have uh, segments like motor vehicles and parts, which rose a staggering 120.8% month to month, but was down 62.8% on a year over year basis. So I think when we're looking in and digesting some of these uh, industrial production numbers, it's important to put it into perspective on a year over year basis. And the other thing to kind of keep in mind is where we were this time last year. Manufacturing and industrial production was already in a weakened point. And so as we go through this year, the comps are going to get easier. And so if we're still in that negative growth trend with easier comps, I think that's really going to be telling for what's happening within the manufacturing and what's happening within industrial production. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think the big debate here is how much does industrial production help the economy? How much does it represent of the growth and sustainability of our overall economy? The industrial production wasn't great prior to COVID. Now it's really kind of a lagging sector. And you're seeing that in the carload volumes, correct? They're just not, I mean, they're returning kind of like what Anthony was talking about. Is that accurate? Yeah, I would say, you know, specifically for the ones that are the most economically sensitive, you're seeing that some of the biggest <clears throat> declines. Mm -hmm. So um, like uh, metals is down over 30%, sort of metals, minerals, a lot of that mm -hmm. goes on the, on, on the rails. And some of that is scrap. Some of that goes into sort of raw materials that goes into other things. But, right. but you know, those uh, metals, chemicals, all, all manner of you know, minerals, um, you know, building products, those type of things are, are really are really depressed and really haven't improved much other than you know, motor vehicle plants coming back online and, and, and those things. And I'll ask both of you this one. How much do you think that we need to have a strong industrial economy uh, for, you know, the United States general economy to do well? I mean, it just appears like we are growing more and more in a service economy fashion. Consumer oriented technology is booming. How much is how much is that industrial side and how important is the industrial side of the economy to the recovery? I would say certainly less than than it's ever been before, mm -hmm. and I think you know as as years go go on, it becomes a, a, a smaller portion of it. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's it's you know I think you could have a growing economy with a declining you know industrial economy. I think we've seen that in in certain previous 
you know, cycles, um, you know, but at the same time, you know, the, the, the it, it goes to the, the companies, you know, having the, um, you know, confidence to invest capital too, which, right. you know, to, to a large extent, I mean, you have, you know, very sophisticated CFOs that have all this data and people reporting to them and, and they're making, you know, capital decisions. And, you know, if companies are not willing to spend capital to me, that's a bad sign a bad for sign, other yeah. things as well. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, I think it's still a very important component for our economy, but um, there is that balance of capital versus labor, I think, that Mike touched on here. And what's really going to be important is how much capital and technological advancement is going to be made within industrial production and manufacturing in order to improve efficiencies, because the labor aspect is, I think, going to continue to draw down Mm -hmm. as years go on. And so I think it's going to be an essential part, but less of a human... uh, um, aspect of it, more of a capital technological aspect to it altogether. Yeah, that's fair. So we've got less than a minute left and we'd like to end our show with a special trivia question or a debate topic. Today it's a trivia question. I've got one. I'm going to pose it to Mike first. Actually, I'm going to pose it to Anthony first, Uh, then Mike. Top 1000 hip hop slash rap songs of all time. Oh, geez. Name one of the top three. Okay, 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 okay. According to SiriusXM. Um... Rapper's Delight has to be on there, right? It was. Yes. One. All right, Mike. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't, oh, gosh. Um, Quick. I'm trying to think of a name. What's the, the one that um, Snoop Dogg had that was covered by the, the chords? Gin, gin and Juice. Gin and I'll Juice is close. Gin and Juice. Dr. Dre, nothing but a G thing. <laughs> but Snoop Dogg was number one.